organs, 10 systems, 206 bones, and 60,000 miles of blood vessels if they were to be lined up end-to-end and stretched out. However, far more impressive than just its components and its structure is the interconnectedness with which it functions. Each individual body system works in conjunction with other body systems to make the whole body function. Your respiratory system relies on your circulatory system to deliver the oxygen it gathers, while the muscles of your heart cannot function without the oxygen they receive from your lungs. The bones of your skull and your spine protect your brain and spinal cord, but your brain regulates the position of your bones by controlling your muscles. Even seemingly um, unrelated body systems are interconnected in amazing ways. Your skeletal system relies on your urinary system to remove waste produced by bone cells. And in return, the bones of your skeletal system create a structure that protects your bladder and other urinary organs. Working together, these systems maintain internal stability, cohesion, and balance, otherwise known as homeostasis. Disease in one body system can disrupt the balance and cause trouble in many other body systems. For example, if you become ill with a certain type of virus that affects your immune system, um, pneumonia can develop in your respiratory system. Um, A yeast infection can develop in your reproductive system. And a condition that affects your esophagus can develop in your digestive system. Or a skin cancer known as Kaposi's sarcoma can develop. Now, I know uh, amongst us this morning are a few uh, individuals that work in the medical profession and field, so if my medical understanding is slightly off, forgive me, or you can gently rebuke me after the service. Um, But the point is this. The interconnectedness and functionality of the human body is truly awesome. Now, I'm careful to use that word awesome because every time I use it, there's a voice inside my head that says, only God is awesome. And I can appreciate that, but I agree that the the creator and the designer of the human body, I think it's appropriate use of the word awesome this morning. This morning we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the human body, but not in the way that we have to this point, but rather as a metaphor to describe how Christ's church is designed to function. So for those of you that are just joining us this morning, or as a review for the rest of you uh, that haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, um, We are taking a four-week break from the Roman series that we've been preaching through uh, just to remind ourselves why we exist as a church, how we are structured as a church, and how we are biblically to function as a body of believers here at South Shore. So two weeks ago, we answered the question of what is our mission? Feeling that we didn't have the authority to creatively craft our own mission statement, we looked to Scripture and specifically the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to give us our mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So how are we going to fulfill this mission? Of course, just like it says in Matthew 28, we're going to go, we're going to baptize, and we're going to teach. We did spend some time teasing it out and, and looking at each of these directives in terms of what they meant and what they might look like here at South Shore. But is there anything else? Well, of course there is. Once we go, once we baptize, we need a life context in in which we can do our teaching. And that's here. We need somewhere to call people to. We are calling people to join us here 
in our church in motion. So last week we looked at the ministry structure here at South Shore, an entire ministry structure uh, based on the early New Testament church and described in just two simple verses in Acts. Acts 1 verses 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then in Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So that kind of set up our ministry structure. We encouraged each of you to get plugged in to do the work of the ministry as we equip you as the saints. So now with the mission clear and the biblical structure in place to call people to, what does the church actually look like? How exactly are we to function as a church? Believe it or not, we are not the first ones to ever ask that question. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to spend our time exploring this morning and next week. So I want to give you some of the context of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. This morning we're going to look at the church in Corinth. Now I know some of you may be shocked because we're not necessarily looking at that church as an inspiration, as if they were a shining example of what a healthy church looks like but rather as a church that needed some redirection. So at the time that uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he was in Ephesus, and the church at Corinth was um, experiencing some turmoil, to say the least. There was lots of theological confusion over issues like marriage and divorce, participation in pagan uh, religions, um, how to order corporate worship. Uh, They didn't quite understand the bodily resurrection of Christians. And then if that wasn't enough, they were plagued with some more serious issues of division, sexual immorality, and social snobbery. So quite a package of issues they were dealing with as a church, but that was the um, context for which Paul wrote this letter uh, to that church. So needless to say, division and disunity reigned throughout the church in Corinth. This morning we're going to be in the uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, but it's important you know what precedes the text we're going to be reading this morning. So in the first 11 uh, verses of that chapter, chapter 12, Paul's addressing the divisions amongst um, the Christians in relation specifically to their spiritual giftings. They were elevating one spiritual gift, and in this case it was speaking in tongues over every other spiritual gift. So after rebuking the believers in Corinth for their actions, Paul goes on to acknowledge the diversity and wide range of spiritual gifts, but he also boldly reminds the church in Corinth of the giver of those gifts, who is God and then moves into our text this morning on how we are to function as a church, the body of Christ. So please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 12 through 26. And as you are finding your place in Scripture, if I can ask you to stand to read the Word of God together. So we're in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12 and reading down to verse 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? 
But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your all-sufficient word. We know that when your word is read or spoken or taught, it never returns empty or void. Father, as we look to the Corinthian church and study both the church and your design for our local church here, Father, we pray that each of us will be encouraged, encouraged by the things that we are doing well. Father God, and challenged by those things that maybe don't fall quite in line with the biblical mandates for how we should be uh, functioning as a local body. Father, we just pray that I will be faithful to the text this morning so that it is, it is your words and your message that will go out unhindered by my frailty and depravity. Father God, we ask you all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So throughout the New Testament, a number of metaphors were used to describe the church, the local body. And I think you can kind of go through your mind and remember some of the texts that you've read over the last number of years um, and identify some of these things. Some of them we sang about this morning. So one of the metaphors used uh, quite a bit is a building or a structure. I know in one of our songs this morning, we sang about Christ being the cornerstone, right? So that's a metaphor that's used often through uh, the New and Old Testament. Uh, also a field. Another metaphor we see is a holy temple. Uh, a third one we see is the family or household of God, which Blair will look at next week for us as he teases out that metaphor from First and Second Timothy. Uh, a fourth or fifth one that's often used, is, and one that we're probably most familiar with, is the bride, right, in terms of the way he uh, develops um, the church being the bride of Christ. But here Paul uses the metaphor of a body. And so this is an image that's very familiar to us today as it was, would have been for the early believers. The, the body hasn't changed much over the course of history, needless to say. So this is a metaphor that's not lost on anyone. Um, and this is also not the only place in the New Testament that this body metaphor is used. In Ephesians 4, the verse reads, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.23 says Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And then in Colossians 1, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Spelled out pretty clearly using the, the body metaphor. However, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul develops the body imagery to a much further extent than most other places in Scripture when it is really just mentioned to help us gain understanding. He uses the body metaphor here this morning that we'll look at to illustrate and communicate three foundational descriptors 
of a functionally healthy church. And these attributes are that the local church is, one, unified, two, diverse, and three, interdependent. So we're going to take a look at these three things through the text, um, starting with unity in the first two verses. Verse 12 reads, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You'll notice the passage here begins with the word for, and that indicates really it's just building on what is, has already been uh, included in the letter. So in this case, it's related to verses 4 through 11, which I talked about had to do with spiritual gifts. Um, but he further develops the body imagery, which you need to go a little bit back and a little bit back further in 1 Corinthians to see that this isn't the first time this is introduced in his letter either. He's used it on a number of different occasions in chapter 10 and 12 in reference to the Lord's Supper. And those are passages that we're probably pretty familiar with. So if you flip back a couple pages in your Bible to uh, chapter 10, verse 17, it reads, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So again, referencing the body, body of Christ. And then in uh, chapter 11, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks judgment, uh, sorry, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this body imagery is not new um, in this letter. This is not the first time we've seen it. Um, but um, as we look at our passage, just starting in verse 12 and moving through, keep that body imagery kind of in the forefront of your mind. So verse 12 in chapter 12 is basically the thesis statement for what we're going to talk about today. And at first glance, you read it and you seem it's pretty redundant. Does it not say the same thing twice? Well, it does, but it's very intentional. And it's written more in a ABBA format or a 1221. Okay, so it talks about unity, diversity, diversity, unity. This is not uncommon for the way that Paul writes. Um, if you want to walk through it, for just as the body is one, unity, and has many members, diversity, and all the members of the body, though many, diversity, are one body, unity. Okay, so really spelling out the aspects of both unity and diversity. Remember, Paul's main concern here is the narrowness and the uniformity of the Corinthians' view uh, of the Spirit, and specifically in relation to these spiritual gifts. So their distorted view of these spiritual gifts and the elitist attitude that came with it, thinking one gift was, was more superior than another one, led to their disunity. The thrust of this passage may be diversity, but we can't miss the unity that is at the beginning and at the end of, of verse 12 here. Um, because that's the foundation upon which this diversity will be built. Right? And it's communicated in verse 12, and then it's also elaborated on in verse 13. So con consider for a minute how we see unity in our own body. Okay, when we stub our toe, our body reacts. Right? The first thing we do is our leg reacts. We try to pull our foot away from whatever we've kicked or stubbed our toe on. Our arms react. Right? We reach down to grab our toe. Okay? Our mouth or our face cringes. Sometimes even our mouth yells, right? Um, and our eyes dart to see what it was that we just kicked. And then maybe our mouth then adds a little bit more too if it was one of your kids that left the toy there, right? So our body reacts in unity to things like that. It works seamlessly and organically uh, together. There are no real individual decisions that the body part or body system makes. Um, 
the body reacts as a whole unit, 78 organs, 10 systems, and one unified response. Um, and it's not like certain members or certain parts of our body can opt out when they don't feel like assisting us in a certain part of the task, right? Another um, figure for the church that Jesus uses to, sell the to tell the same truth in terms of the unity of the body is the vine and the branch. And we're familiar with this passage out of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches, he said. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So a severed branch in a vineyard is not just an unproductive or unfruitful branch. It's actually a lifeless branch without the ability to do either. And it is for this reason in the New Testament, it quite often speaks about uh, us being in Christ and Christ being in us. You'll notice it, it isn't just that Christ is simply with his church, right? He is in his church, and his church is in him. The church is an organic whole, the living manifestation of Jesus Christ that produces and pulses with this eternal life of God. John 14 says, Because I live, you shall live also. 1 John 5 says, He who has the Son has the life. While he was on earth, Christ was incarnate in a single body. Now he's incarnate in another body, the great, precious, unified body that is his church. Paul didn't say, uh, for to me to live is being Christian, right? But rather, we know how the verse goes, for me to live is Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is Christ in the church. The same Christ life is possessed by every believer, and every believer, therefore, is part of Christ, part of his body, the church. The unity, then, is, is developed a little more in verse 13. Uh, follow along with me here in verse 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, at first glance, you see the words baptized, and you see the words made to drink, and your mind immediately goes to ordinances, right? It goes to communion, and it goes to baptism. And as we dig a little deeper, you will see that that is not the context, and that's not the case here. Paul is actually presenting two important truths about Christ's body. The formation of Christ's body, and then the filling of Christ's body. So let's tease that out a little bit. The church is formed as believers are baptized with Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is not referring to water baptism. We know what water baptism is. It's an outward expression. It's a physical ordinance that believers submit to and is performed by other believers in obedience to Christ's commands. Right? Water baptism plays no role in our conversion, but is a testimony to the church and the world around us Okay, of a conversion that has already taken inward, that's already taken place inwardly. Spirit baptism, which we see here in verse 13, okay, is, is entirely the work of God and is virtually a synonym for salvation. As one is immersed in water, so a believer is immersed spiritually into the body of Christ. One spirit baptism establishes one church. There are no partial Christians or partial members of Christ's body there's no halfway house for his children. There's no purgatory. Right? All his children will remain in his household forever. Blair will talk about that, I'm sure, next week as he teases out that metaphor. 
It's not possible to be a Christian and not be baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. That's what being converted, that's what being a Christian is. It goes on to talk about Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. This is just a simple reminder that race, religion, social status, all those things are obliterated when we come to Christ. Right? Our old distinctives, whatever they may be, and you could make a list of 20 things, our old distinctives are replaced by our new identity in Christ. As a believer, you become part of his body, the church. The second truth we see here about his body is its filling. Okay? When we made the decision to surrender our lives to Christ, the Lord not only placed us into his body, but he placed the Holy Spirit into us. At salvation, all were made to drink of one spirit, as it says there at the end of verse 13. All were made to drink of one spirit. Just like there are no partially saved Christians, there are, there are no partially indwelt Christians. Right? Um, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion. There's no second working of grace. God has nothing more to put into us. He has put his very self into us, and that amount cannot be exceeded, ever. What might be lacking is our obedience or our trust or our full submission, but it's not his full salvation or his indwelling or his blessing. But that's kind of another sermon for another series, and so we'll get back to our, our text here. Um, our unity here at South Shore is not found in social status. It's not found in um, ethnic group or any other demographic, but solely in the accomplished work of Christ on the cross. It is through that sacrifice that we are justified, adopted, and part of the body of Christ, his church. If you're here this morning, that's basically the gospel in a nutshell. If you're here this morning and have never heard that message or have never surrendered your life to Christ, we would love to dialogue with you about the forgiveness of sin, about the great grace that you can receive through Christ and Christ alone. Feel free to speak to myself or anyone else in leadership, the person that you came with, or anybody that's sitting around you now. Um, we'd love to share that message of the gospel with you. As we move further down in the text, the next attribute is diversity. And although unity forms the foundation as the body of Christ, and it may be a more important characteristic in, in being unity and unified, diversity is essential to that unity and is the emphasis of, the, of most of the rest of the text. So verse 14 picks up, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? The Corinthian church was divided where it should have been unified, and it tried to be uniform where it should have been diverse. They had it all backwards. On one hand, it was divided, for example, over leadership. They fought over who they were going to listen to or follow. Right? Whether it was Paul or Paulos or Peter, right, when they should have been unified under Christ. They fought over who to follow. And then on the other hand, the members tried to be all alike in the spiritual gifts they possessed. Instead of being glad for what God had given to them and faithfully used that gift, they all aspired to 
possessed the same gift. Envy prevailed, everyone wanting a gift that someone else had. So, to combat this, in the letter, Paul uses personification of the extremities of the limbs. So we're talking the foot and the hand here. And the two sensory, or and two of the sensory organs, the ear and the eye, to illustrate the importance of diversity. Diversity in a body and diversity in the body of Christ. The foot, thinking he could not be part of the church because he was not a hand, and the ear feeling left out because he was not an eye. Both the foot and the ear were feeling unimportant, being assigned a position in the body that they felt was inferior, not as good, inconsequential. And I don't really want to get much into the merits of the, the foot versus the hand, you know, locomotion versus grabbing and reaching and those kind of things, or hearing and sight, because you all know the, the merits of each of those um, parts of the body. But I do, what I do know about those parts is that the, without any of those parts, the body is left disabled. Think about the heart. The failure of one small valve in the heart can shut down our entire circulatory system and eventually lead to our death. That's the importance of each part. In the church, we need to be sensitive to those who incorrectly believe they don't possess a special gift. But we also need to realize that if, if that's the way you're feeling, to sit on the sidelines and not get involved and pout and refuse to play with the others is completely selfish. And that's what was happening at the church in Corinth here. In seeming humility, the immature believers in Corinth said, I don't have a spiritual gift, so I'm really not part of this church. Or my gift is uh, unimportant or second-rate. So I have nothing to offer, so why should I participate? This attitude doesn't reflect humility. It's self-centered and actually an affront to God's wisdom and goodness. There are no unimportant or inferior gifts or people in the church. The text goes on to say that those notions of the foot and the ear and of not belonging do not make it any less a part of the body. And this is important. Just because they feel like they, they're not part of the body or can't contribute doesn't take that responsibility off of them. Disclaiming responsibility does not remove it. Refusing to function as part of the body does not make us any less a part of the body or any less responsible for ministering within it. We have no right to remove ourselves from our God-given responsibilities just because we are dissatisfied with who we are or the gifts we've been given. That's disobedience. And it's sad to say, but many believers, or some believers, have never known the joy of ministry and never known the joy of pleasing the Lord because of this mindset or perspective of they don't belong, so they don't want to participate. Paul then continues the analogy, if the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? I had trouble visualizing this, so I, I thought of um, this to help you out. And Levi, can you help us out on the screen there? So you might recognize this guy, Mike Wazowski. Maybe some of the younger ones do. Um, when I thought of the body just being an eye, I thought of Mike Wazowski. Now, I know this isn't a perfect representation, because Mike Wazowski has arms, and he has legs, and he has a mouth. But as Blair told me this morning, he doesn't have any depth perception, right? Because he's just an eye. So um, I thought this would be a, a, a bit of a good reminder of, of what the body looks like if it doesn't have all its parts, if it's not diverse. Um, if it's just an eye, there's no smell, no hearing, no way to move, well, except to roll maybe, 
no way to feed itself, no way to digest that food, right, it wouldn't be long until um, that component would die, would shrivel up and die. A reminder that the body cannot possibly function if it is all the same part. Now, common sense should have told the church at Corinth that as a body of believers that they could minister, they could spread the gospel more effectively if different members were performing different ministries. Diversity is a necessity in many aspects of life, whether it's in a company or a sports team or even um, on a high school teaching staff or in a high school teaching staff. Having a diverse range of gifts and ability is just good practice. So what's the difference between assembling a company and a sports team versus the church? Well, it is man that hires for companies and recruits for sports teams. But verse 18 tells us, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. God chooses us, God has given us our gifts, and God places us in a local body to use them. By not wanting the gifts that they, or by wanting the gifts they didn't have, the Corinthian believers questioned God's wisdom, questioned his goodness, and questioned, and thought, and, and questioned, um, yeah, his plan, right? He, they implied that he was making a mistake. And the problem was they didn't see their right, their gifts rightly because they didn't see the sovereign God rightly. Questioning or not using our gifts is disobeying God. And Paul spells this out pretty clear in Romans. Romans 9, verse 20 and 21, reads, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? As members of Christ's body, we are not to do our own will, not to seek after our own will, but to do the Lord's. The arm doesn't have one will, and the foot another, and the eye yet another will. Each is controlled by the head, mind, will, and spirit. It's possible for your body to be, to be so remarkably coordinated only because it is directed by the head, by one will. One will tells each part of the body to do what it is best designed and equipped to do. And as a result, they work in marvelous harmony. How much more should the Lord Jesus Christ control his body, the church, of which he is not only the head, but is the creator? So he has made us diverse in so many ways, including our giftings, and within his design for the church, expects us to use those giftings and contribute according to those. We are blessed here at South Shore to reflect God's design for the church with a diver diverse group of people who exhibit a large range of gifts and competencies. But even more so, we're blessed to have a group of believers who understands the way God has wired them and has willingly chosen to serve in ministries according to those gifts. Now, it hasn't always been that way. As a young church plant seven years ago, sometimes there were more tasks that needed to be done than gifts in the body. And uh, I can remember back to our early days, um, there was one volunteer that worked in children's ministry, and, uh, and right from day one, she would tell, at least me, maybe some other people, but she would, she would tell us, this is not my gifting. And um, we maybe didn't affirm her that it wasn't her gifting, but she continued to serve. She said, I know there's a hole here, I will keep serving in children's ministry, but just to know it, it's not my gifting. 
And as time wore on, it became, this is not my gifting, and um, I don't find joy in it. Okay? You, not your gifting. Joy. I still in need. I'm still going to continue to serve in it. And then it came to, um, it's not my gifting. I don't find joy in it. And it actually physically and emotionally drains me so that I can't serve in other areas. So we worked our best to move her out of that role and into a role where her gifting and passion could come together. So that's a good example of why God has gifted us a certain way and wants us serving according to our passions. I was uh, in a children's ministry screening interview only a few weeks ago, um, talking with one of you. And um, it was uh, one of our members who's been involved in cleaning the building for years, as long as we've done it. She's been instrumental in, in, in many ways in cleaning. And so I wrongly assumed that that was her gifting. And so we're in that children's ministry screening, and I, and I thanked her for serving and assumed that she would continue serving in cleaning because that was her gifting. And she looked at me and said, that's not, my, that's not my gifting. The only time I ever clean my house is when there are guests coming over. I'm just doing it because it needs to be done. So I was quickly reminded that that's not her gifting, then she shouldn't be serving in that. She later told me that I used to run a home daycare. I ran a home daycare for many, many years and absolutely loved children. And that was us wrongly assuming what her gifting was. She's gifted with children and now serves in children's ministries, but we wouldn't have known that necessarily unless she had told us. So there's a, a gifting that, that was hidden from us. Um, now, I know some of you are probably thinking you can't get past the point. Is anyone really gifted and has a passion for cleaning, right? Some of you are probably thinking that right now. And um, I'll tell you, yes. We've had at least two young families over the last number of years that have been frustrated that they can't find places to find... Uh, a place where their whole family can serve together, right? Kids are young, they can't serve many places for various reasons, both in the community and in the church, and so they really find clean, the cleaning opportunity here a blessing and a joy. They bring their dinner, they pump the music up in here, and they, they clean. And it might take them a little longer, but, and, and some mornings you may walk in on a Sunday and you may look at the glass door at the back and wonder why it's only clean halfway up. <laughs> and so my challenge to you is smile. And be grateful that our young ones are finding a place to serve within this body. There are many places to serve at South Shore. You saw it last week, the ministry structure is on the, on the screen behind me. Um, but something that maybe wasn't teased out last week is amongst those ministries that you see the headings of, there are tons of sub-ministries. For example, in children's ministry, um, there are class coordinators that look after each of the rooms and coordinate some of the staffing. There are, there's a registration desk. There are teachers, there are helpers. In youth, there's junior high and senior high and different ways that you can help there. In finances, we have a counting team that is in desperate need of a few more volunteers, even today. Um, within the uh, admin team, um, there is a social media subcommittee or subgroup that helps us uh, market and get our uh, sermons online, that kind of thing. Um, in the facility, there's a cleaning side and a maintenance side. In hospitality, there is or will be weekly uh, hospitality teams, uh, potluck coordinators, special event coordinators. Our music team, we have three or four different music teams. Um, our, our tech team requires both sound and projection. And you heard at the members meeting, we could use a few more people in, the, in that ministry as well. Our Sunday admin team involves communion. Part of our Sunday admin team is decorating. They came running in here with these live plants this morning at 9.30. Um, there's a newcomer's ministry. There's a greeting. So there's lots of places that we can get involved. Um, it's not just that um, 
we have lots of different places, we need a diversity of giftings to fill those places appropriately. Verse 19 goes on to say, if all were a single member, where would the body be? 78 different organs with 78 different functions. Our bodies don't reflect Mike Wazowski. Our church shouldn't either. 54 different members and probably an equal number of kids all possessing a different combinations of gifts and using them in different capacities. That should characterize South Shore. Verse 20 then simply restates the thesis. Right? Unity through diversity. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Characteristics of a healthy, functioning church are that they are both unified and diverse. The remainder of the text stresses the third component of a healthy church, and that is interdependence, both of the members and their functions. Remember the beginning of the sermon, we talked a little bit about the respiratory system depending on the circulatory system and the muscular system depending on the skeletal system. Um, if you want to think more simply, think about if you hurt your back. The other parts of the body need to compensate for that injury, right? You have to lean over a certain way even when you're brushing your teeth. To bend your knees, you'll have to put one arm on the counter to help support the weight. Your body instinctively reacts and responds to these changes and to these injuries. If there is an injury in one part, the other parts of the body will compensate. This is the beauty of interdependence. The text says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, um, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Today it seems that our culture does not like the idea of dependence. We major on independence, right? We don't want to need others, nor be defined by others. Right? Dependence sounds like a weakness or a deficiency. We love our autonomy. We take pride in our autonomy. Sure, we want community, but are we willing to pay for it at the expense of our autonomy? Whereas the first kind of individualist that we see in verse 15 and 16 in this passage says, they don't need me. There's nowhere I can serve. I'm not part of this body. The second one here says, I don't need them. God has made all his creation interrelated, especially mankind, who he made in his own image. And this attitude is even more surprising in the church, whose members have this common savior and spiritual body. This attitude was common in the Corinthian church. A few prominent and gifted members um, acted as if they were self-sufficient, carrying on ministries, Christian living completely by themselves. They had overestimated their own importance and underestimated the importance of other believers. Verse 22 says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. As important as some of the prominent or visible members of the human body are, it is possible to live without them. You can lose an eye, an ear, a foot, a hand, right? They're important but not necessary, right? However, you cannot lose your heart, your liver, your brain, and still live. 
Those organs are more hidden than others, but they're also more vital. Yes, you still notice the breathing of your lungs, and you can still feel your pulse and realize that your heart is responsible for that. But the work of them is not quite as noticeable as what your hands and feet do, right? Those less noticeable parts, such as internal organs, seem to be weaker than much of the rest of the body, such as our external limbs, but they are actually more necessary. Consequently, they are more guarded by the skeleton and the rest of the body. They are more vital and more vulnerable, and therefore are given more protection. The most vital ministries in the church always include some that are not so obvious. I think about the faithful prayers that we have. I think about the spiritual mentors. Some of the services that a few of the dedicated saints that have no office or title or position, but are often the most productive channels for spiritual growth amongst this body. The Corinthian church had failed to be considerate and appreciative of those who didn't have the upfront gifts of prophecy or healing. We need to not only appreciate, but protect these servants vital to ministry. If you are a member here at South Shore, you are indispensable. And every other member is an indispensable part of your life. They too are part of the body God has assembled here to display the beauty of the gospel. Verse 23, And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Now, less honorable term here probably refers to parts of the body that are not particularly attractive, relative, probably referring to the torso in general, the, the, the parts of the body that we hang clothes on. It um, might include flabby thighs or an over-40 belly, but is usually covered because it's considered less attractive, maybe certainly in my case. Um, but bestow literally means to put around, to cover, we spend more of our time and money, equating to greater honor, clothing those parts of the body than the ones that are more presentable, such as the hands or the face. Goes on to say, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. In other translations, unpresentable is shameful or indecent. And exactly what you are thinking of, parts of the body that are private and to be covered. In virtually all societies, and all societies in history, with the exception of a few uh, primitive tribes, um, those parts are treated with modesty. It's not the parts of the bodies themselves that are shameful, but rather the display of them. When we treat these less honorable and less presentable parts with greater honor or modesty, they become more decent, they become more attractive. Those in positions of leadership or prominence are not to look down on those with less noticeable gifts, but should take special care to show appreciation and protect them when necessary. Verse 24, which our more presentable parts do not require. Those with more noticeable or attractive gifts have less need for encouragement or protection. They don't have no need, but they have less need. Honor naturally flows their way in so many other forms. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Mutual support and encouragement is necessary to avoid both overconfidence and underconfidence, but also to avoid division. In God's eyes, every believer and every ministry should be of the highest importance. In a mature body of believers, all will have the same care for one another. 
it says in the passage. We need to care as much for the greeter as we do the seeds worker as we do our pastor. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If our hand was crushed in a tragic accident, or maybe just hit with a hammer, um, the whole body would feel pain. Just as in an interdependent church feels both the joy and the pain of other members. Only that sort of mutual love and concern can prevent or heal division and really promote and preserve unity. An interdependent church is made up of members who rely on each other for encouragement, for protection, for belonging, for prayer, and for the overall function. We realize and appreciate that it takes many of you <coughs> serving in many different capacities for this local church to function and for the word to be preached every week. I think back to, uh, we were at Ethnos a few weeks ago, New Tribes Missions. It's a Christian organization that uh, trains, equips, and sends out missionaries to uh, unreached people groups in the world. And they were explaining to us how much work and how much interdependence there is amongst their organization to get one missionary or one missionary family into one tribe. It takes seminary professors to train them. It takes an office staff to coordinate their accommodations, their fundraising, their registration, all their books. It takes a communication staff, both while they're in training and overseas. It takes accountants. It takes pilots to fly them in. It takes linguists to help with the language training and some of the translations. It takes country hosts, once they get there, to be climatized to the, to the culture of that country before they're sent into these villages and tribal groups. It takes teachers to teach the children of the missionaries. And then it takes dorm parents to look after the children of the missionary parents when they're not in school. So and it takes buy there's buyers as well that have to bring supplies in, that order supplies for the missionaries, and then work on the logistics of transporting it in. So tons of different people to support one missionary. Um, the military is a great example of interdependence. Um, they have something called a tooth-to-tail ratio. And uh, some of you in the military may know that term. That's the term for the number of support personnel needed for every combat soldier in the field. So in Canada, I think that ratio is about eight to one. So they require eight support personnel for one combat soldier. And I know we have at least three support personnel. I know there's a fourth, but I don't know his role. But I know we have at least three support personnel in the room um, this morning here for the military. So that's another great example of interdependence. This interdependence, as seen in the church, is not just beneficial or a good strategy to promote cohesion amongst believers, but it's biblical, right? It's God's design for his church. So how are we doing as a church? Our mission from Matthew 28 is clear. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Our structure from Acts is in place, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the apostles devoted themselves, um, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. But how are we functioning as a body of Christ? A healthy church that is unified, diverse, and interdependent. And if you ask me, I think we're doing pretty well. 
I feel that these three characteristics that we looked at this morning, being unity, diversity, and interdependence, I think can characterize, accurately characterize who we are here at South Shore. So then what do we take away from a message like this or a passage like 1 Corinthians 12? Do we pat ourselves on the back? Or maybe we pat the back of the person ahead of us or in front of us or behind us saying, wow, we're doing a great job. By no means. A healthy church is under attack, and we know that. The devil will look to stir up conflict, turn brother against brother, and cause division amongst us. So the first thing we can do is be on guard. But secondly, I want you to ask yourself, how am I contributing to the unity here? Do I know what my gifts are, and am I using them to the fullest here at South Shore? Do I truly believe I am needed here, and likewise depend on others? And is that attitude reflected in all that I do? So with our mission to go, to baptize, and to teach clear, and a solid biblical structure in place out of Acts, a place to call people to, my question for all of us to consider and pray through is this. When new people arrive, be it next week or next year, will they see a functionally healthy church that accurately represents the body of Christ? A diverse group of believers, dependent on others, working in unison to advance the gospel and disciple others for the glory of God and God alone. That's my prayer this morning. My prayer that that's exactly what they will see when they come in here that we will be that church that is diverse, that is unified, and that is dependent on each other to advance the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your challenge this morning. We thank you for your design for the local church, that we be unified around the, co- the grace that we've received from you. Father, that we are diverse and we celebrate that diversity in a wide range of giftings. Lord, we pray that um, those in this room will find ways to serve in ways that they are gifted and that their passion, that you will align both their passion and their giftedness so that they can advance your kingdom. Father, we pray for uh, interdependence. We pray for letting go of our desire to want to do things our way and by ourselves and realize that depending on others within this body is a biblical mandate. Father, we thank you for those things that we uh, enjoy here. And Lord, may you continue to uh, bless us and protect us as we continue to fall more closely in line uh, with uh, your will for this local body. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We just pray that you continue to be glorified in the way that we function here as a body of believers, accurately representing body of Christ to the world around us. In your name I pray. Amen.